The Dudes of Kung Fu podcast is brought to you by Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. Wing Chun Illustrated is the premier publication for Wing Chun. Published six times a year, Wing Chun Illustrated is a perfect bound, full-color, glossy publication. Each 60-page issue comes packed with in-depth content and feature stories by and about the world's greatest exponents of Wing Chun, regardless of lineage or style. Wing Chun Illustrated has featured people like Imin Bostepe, Philip Bayer, Yip Chun, Gary Lam, Donald Mack, Samuel Kwok, David Peterson, Chan Chi Man, Mark Phillips, Wan Kam Leung, Sam Lau, Robert Chu, Sifu Sergio, Victor Ken, and many, many more. There are two ways you can enjoy this fantastic publication. Go to wingchunillustrated.com and order the magazine as a print-on-demand. The print quality is simply amazing. Or download the Magster app and get a subscription. That's Magster, M-A-G-Z-T-E-R. This way, when the new issue hits the stands, you'll automatically receive it as a download onto your smart device for offline reading. In fact, with your new Magster account, you can access the magazine on multiple devices, iOS, Android, Kindle Fire, and web browser. To make the deal even sweeter, listeners of the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast can use the coupon code DUDES to get a six-month complimentary digital subscription. That coupon code is DUDES, typed in all capital letters. Go to Magster, again M-A-G-Z-T-E-R, to register, add the six-month subscription to the cart, and apply the coupon code at checkout. The Dudes of Kung Fu love Wing Chun Illustrated Magazine. Dudes of Kung Fu. Please welcome your host, Alex Richter and Big Sean Madigan. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Alex. How are you, bro? I'm doing really well, man. I've been teaching all week uh, my ITC summer camp that I talked about. So my voice is a little weak because I've been teaching like 30 savages every day and having to talk loudly because as uh, many people might know, it's super hot in New York. My school is on the fifth floor, so it gets really hot. And then when you get 30 guys in there beating each other up, we have to have the fans and the AC running. So I have to like talk really loud. And I've been doing that all week, and so my voice is a little bit weak, so I apologize for that. Yeah, I, I, uh, and I you do the ITC once a year, right? Yes, I do, at the end of June, yeah. At the end of June, yeah, it's, it looks awesome. I mean, the pictures you posted online were phenomenal, and I saw that you, um, looks like you were even working, I don't want to say Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or wrestling, but more of a... Uh, <sighs> tackle situation or yeah. wrestling type situation well so um one of the things that i like to do because I, I do consider myself kind of a purist when it comes to wing chun like in terms of the art i really like it but i always feel that what wing chun needs to do is uh modernize the way it's trained and the way it's taught so um people always forget that when wing chun was developed you know they were worried about fighting other styles of kung fu other styles of southern martial arts and they didn't have somebody coming at them with a kind of boxing style combination, low kicks, grappling, takedowns, stuff like that. So, um, but Wing Chun is designed to fight other martial arts. Wing Chun is not designed to fight Wing Chun. So in keeping with that tradition of Wing Chun, I now focus on teaching Wing Chun against 
the modern types of attacks that we encounter. So I did a whole section, um, you know, with like the kind of seatbelt rear bear hug takedown, which is pretty common in grappling and, um, you know, so that they can feel what it's like, teach them the strategies to get out of it and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, they really like it. I, I love teaching it. And that was one of the modules we did form and cheese out and fighting and sparring and self-defense. We did everything. That's that, awesome. Yeah. Now, yeah. now forgive me, if this is a silly question, because I don't know exactly how you're teaching. I, and if you don't want to talk about this, this is fine also. Just go, just go out of it. Do you try and bring the way you deal with more modern attacks back to Wing Chun? Or do you sit there and say, this is the best way of dealing with this attack, regardless if this is quote-unquote Wing Chun or not? So, like, if I, if, like, I just, if I was to get you in a headlock or some other body lock type of situation... Would you say, okay, this is more of a Wing Chun solution to that? Or would you say this move out of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is, in my opinion, the best way of dealing with this, regardless of whether it's Wing Chun or not? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, actually, uh, I heard that, folks. It was a really good question by Big Sean. <laughs> Write that shit down. Because Alex doesn't throw, Alex doesn't throw the compliments my way too often. So. <laughs> uh, well... Actually, uh, I, I think it might be because of the European influence or perhaps it's uh, Leung Ting himself. The, the WT system focused uh, for a very long time on getting out of different holds and grabs. So in other words, uh, we, we didn't just do like the standard, you know, punch and kick defense and chi sao and stuff. Like Siva Leung Ting also taught us a lot about how to get out of holds and grabs and stuff. So that has always kind of been part and parcel to the WT line. And we use you know, Wing Chun, Wing Chun concepts, all the stuff comes from Wing Chun. What I've done in the last few years is compare those things to what some of the uh, other established self-defense schools teach, uh, primarily um, the Valenti brothers who are uh, students of Helio Gracie. This is like kind of the, um, this is the line of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu that focuses most on self-defense, not so much on sport fighting or MMA. And they have a very robust self-defense program about how to get out of all sorts of different holds and things. And what I found to my surprise is that a lot of the things they were teaching, like bear hug defense and rear headlock choke, stuff standing, was remarkably similar to what Sifu Lengting was teaching. But it's always kind of taught on the side. I was actually telling a joke to my students yesterday. You know, when you had asked Sifu Lengting, like, uh, what do you do if somebody puts you in a headlock and tries to pull you to the ground? You know, and he would say, you know, why you let someone put you in a headlock? Why you just punch him? Why are you letting him grab your head? Right? <laughs> Which is kind of like the typical response. Of course, we know. Look, if you hit somebody and they can't put you in a headlock, that's the best thing. But we all know no matter how good you are at punching people, there are people out there who can put you in a headlock regardless. Right. So. Um, we, we would like kind of push, yes, Seagong, but what if like the guy was able to get past your chain punches, your blah, 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 and grabbed your head? Okay, you, you, sh you should really practice your cheese house so he cannot grab your head. Da, 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 da. And then like the third time you push him, he's like, okay. And then he would show, like we'd grab his head and then he would show like this crazy thing. You pull him to the ground and then he would like go with it and roll and roll and roll out of it and get on top of you. And you'd be like, whoa. That's totally awesome, but you had to like pry it out of him because sure, he didn't sure. he didn't like want to give it away right away. So luckily, uh, many years of prying these kind of things out, I I just compiled them onto a list, and um, the he would teach these things, but it was always kind of on the side. He would prefer to teach form fighting, chizo, 
and all that stuff. And then like he'd show you a really crazy way to get out of a rear bear hug. And then he'd be like, okay, now back to cheese out. So right. what I did is taking great um, uh, inspiration from the Valenti brothers is actually put that stuff first and foremost in the program. The students, especially when they're beginners, have to learn that stuff right away because it's a lot easier for a beginner with no punching power to get caught in a bear hug, a front headlock, a guillotine, those kind of things. So I decided to teach these things that were taught in a very scattershot way. I decided to teach it systematically. And then on top of that, um, I also straight up compared the stuff to um, what a lot of what the Valenti brothers were teaching, what other, um, you know, I'm kind of of the opinion the best guys to teach you to get out of holds are grapplers, not strikers. Absolutely right. And so, um, you know, my, my exposure to the Valenti brothers and also to other jujitsu people um, allowed me to kind of compare, uh, like, okay, and I also have friends who are very high level in jujitsu. I can literally just ask them, hey, if I put you in this thing, what do you do? Like, I have them at my disposal. And then they'll show me stuff, and it's a remarkably similar to what we do in Wing Chun, but there'll be, like, a detail that I wasn't taught in Wing Chun, like, about the grip, about something you got to watch out for, or if you do it this way, you got to watch out because the guy might change it and then pull you to the floor. Right. So um, those enhancements um, I put into the original Wing Chun kind of grab defenses for lack of a better term um, but the concept is 100% Wing Chun but it's been fortified by checking it against people who are like really good at that stuff so sure, that's sure. basically how I teach it and kind of everything else I teach is uh, if it's not straight Wing Chun it's um, Wing Chun against modern attacks but it's otherwise classical with kind of enhanced self-defense and enhanced fighting training so that's basically what i do so a, a little bit of both to answer your question i suppose all right very good yeah it's I, I like what you said about the grappling arts um i've always felt that grappling uh and, and i'm not saying this to piss off the kung fu purists at all but i i do think that grappling is one of the uh healthiest forms of martial art out there and when i say healthiest i mean um not just cardiovascular and self-defense wise i also mean mentally um, I find that grapplers seem to have the um, least amount of ego-based systems right. out there when it comes to training. They seem to be more open with their ideas and seem to be more open to putting uh, time in on the mat, so to, you know, right. so to speak. Yes. I, uh, I just think it's a, it's a really most, – most grappling systems are healthy. You know, of course, there's systems of, uh, that – incorporate grappling or throwing that I think are fantasy world. But uh, we both know what I'm talking about when I say, you know, a healthy respect for grappling and a healthy way of going about it. You know, judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, things like that. And I think it's wonderful that you guys are doing that. Thank you. It's fantastic. You know, when I I was in school and I, you know, I I wrestled all through high school. In addition to being the best shape of my life physically, it really gave me, uh, it really helped me grow up. I, you know, I really feel like being on the wrestling team really helped me become more mature much quicker than the guys I was in high school with. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that the guys that I was on the wrestling team with, we weren't the coolest guys in the school. 
but I kind of felt like we had we were always a little different than everybody else in the school. Right. We just held ourselves differently, you know. I felt like the guys on the wrestling team were nicer to to uh, the geekier kids. I kind of felt like the guys on a, and I and I and I remember being a young wrestler on the team, being a freshman, and seeing like the guys that were like the juniors and seniors on the wrestling team, being. And these were tough dudes. I mean, you know, wrestlers and, you know, junior, senior high school wrestlers, when you're a freshman kid coming into school, those guys are like monsters to you, yes, you know? yeah. Because they could just manipulate you on the rat, on the mat. You have no, And when you see, like, as a freshman, that, you know, wow, these guys were really, they weren't the dumb jocks right. that you saw in the other sports. Like, in my school, I went to uh, Nazareth Regional High School in Brooklyn, and the uh, the well-known quote-unquote jocks in school was the baseball team and the basketball team. And it was the biggest collection of dickheads that I've ever right, met in my right, life. Right. And, I, and I remember thinking, like, the wrestling team just wasn't like that. And I really learned a lot from the juniors and seniors just how to treat people. And I, and I, and I just, you find, that, you find that a lot in grappling arts. I just think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a healthy uh, expression of combat. Yeah. Absolutely, and I, and also because it's very organic and it's very straightforward, and this is uh, I, I've taken a lot of inspiration from that in terms of how I have my guys practice cheese house so that it's not done in the, like as a passive aggressive game of tag that they kind of go continuously with each other and then if one person hits the other person you just keep going and you try to patch up those but it doesn't become this ha I got you with one shot we stop ha I got you with one shot we stop it has to be part of a continuous action so it works as a backup system for the the flow that is fighting so um you know, I take a lot of kind of inspiration from that. Like, hey, let's just let's just put in reps. Let's do time. Let's work it, and let's not make it like this weird passive aggressive game of tag that you often see in a lot of Wing Chun schools. You know that that's a great topic, and I think that should be a a topic on another podcast for us on on how chi sao is the different types of chi sao that are out there. Right. Or different types of chisao that we've experienced, because I, I I like that, and I although I've never it's going crazy. Alex and I are friends for years now. I don't think I've ever seen you do chisao, and I don't think you've ever seen me do chisao. People think like we don't. When Alex and I get together, we don't like kung fu each other. Yeah, it's weird. It's um, it's really weird because we really don't like play kung fu. We do kind of like everything else but that. Um, so in 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 how I learned Wing Chun, we will say like the second hit justified the first hit. The second hit proved that the first hit wasn't an accident. And and the third hit proved that the second hit wasn't an accident. And so and what they mean by that is we don't stop after you score a hit. Right. So just kinda like what you said. So like if you hit, if I hit you on the chest and I you know we continue with Chi Sao because one, in a real fight I would continue hitting. Right. I would continue but two, if we stop and reset and keep going, it, it kind of doesn't prove that what I did was not an accident. Right. I need to dominate a situation or have the situation dominated on me and how to recover from that. Yeah. And uh, I, I like that. That should be a, a good topic for us going forward one day. Yeah, I think so too. That that, that also sounds really interesting. Um, also, by the way, I just wanted to make a note uh, to those who follow us on social media because, uh, because of my ITC this week and because of Sean's schedule last weekend, we weren't able to record. So, um, and we weren't sure that we were actually going to be able to get together this week. So the original idea was that I would record another uh, Ask Me Anything episode. 
And uh, so we asked you guys to give me a bunch of questions and I talk about them. Well, um, as it turns out, Sean and I did manage to squeeze some time together this week. I will still do the AMA and answer those questions and we'll have that as a one-off episode. So for those of you who wrote in questions, we had some some really great questions, lots of stuff I thought was uh, really interesting. And, you know, and some of it was also directed more towards me. So it's not like really... Uh, an appropriate topic for for the podcast where we're together um so i'll answer those there um there was one question i thought was kind of cool um and it was from uh our our, our good friend carlos he talked about uh uh, seeing the photos of grandmaster yip man with some female students i don't know did you ever see those photos sean i i have and i I've, I've actually thought of that um I've wondered that, but never asked you. I've, I've always wondered about that, but I've never asked you about it. And we've spoken about female um, instructors before, because you have yes. a, a female instructor on you. I know I know of one, yep. there, there may be more, who is a brilliant martial artist. Yes. And I remember asking you, like, um, is it still Sifu? And like, I remember asking you, like, the terminology right. and things to that effect. And... Um, and she's a dynamite person too. So yes, yes. I uh, yeah, I am interested in this. Yeah. So um, well, the the truth is, I don't really know because even when you, uh, the problem is like, the um, the room of people who can answer that question as to who those females were in particular is getting smaller and smaller. I do know from the books, uh, from genealogy, the Wing Chun family book, and from other books as well, that apparently there was some kind of class. At some point, that Grandmaster Yip Man taught for female students only, and uh, but I don't know how long it lasted because Grandmaster Yip Man is not known for really having any female students of note. So I don't know. Right. I don't know if that was like a one. You see, the problem when the Chinese use the word class is that they can mean like this was a class somebody taught once, like a one-off. Uh, whereas we generally think like this is the ladies class as if it's like an ongoing class in a regular martial arts school. Sure. And, and when I hear the Chinese say like he taught a class for women, um, I don't necessarily think that means it was an ongoing class that really might have been a one off. And it was probably a favor to somebody because from what I heard, I don't think Grandmaster Yip Man was actually that keen on teaching women. And um, of course, when you look at it through a 2019 lens, uh, that seems a bit um, unwoke and a bit uh, barbaric, but uh, you you have to realize that Grandmaster Yip Man came from a completely different cultural background. He was literally right. oh, yeah, he was literally born in the Qing Dynasty. And what what people always forget is that, um, as you've heard before, and I, I undoubtedly have talked about it on the podcast before. Um, you know, Yip Man famously did not want foreigners to learn Wing Chun. Right. And then that's why there's always been that rumor, you know, that he couldn't really teach Bruce Lee because Bruce Lee was one quarter German. Right. Or if you listen to Matt Pauly's new book, uh, uh, perhaps he wasn't quarter German. He was a quarter Dutch or something like that. But either way, um, Bruce Lee's mother, Grace, was not pure blood Chinese. She was half. She was Eurasian. And that being some kind of reason for um, Yip Man not teaching Bruce Lee. And this is... Um, I, I've heard arguments for it and I've heard arguments against it. I, I don't know if I really buy it um, that that had the reason. I, I, I think that Grandmaster Yip Man at the time Bruce Lee was learning, um, and this is no offense to Bruce Lee fans, but most people know that 
Grandmaster Yitman did not really teach Bruce Lee that much, and he didn't really teach him by hand. He was his sifu, but Bruce learned mostly from Wong Sun Leung. I mean, kind of everyone knows that. And so... Um, and but didn't everybody in the school kind of learn from their Hings anyway? Uh, yes, um, however... I mean, except for, like, I would say, like, you know, disciples maybe who got to, you know, pay extra money to go learn the dummy form or something. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, for the most part, in a class situation, you would learn from your Hings, right? Even back in 1960s Hong Kong, right? Yeah, and, and, and of course, that, that that's partially has to do with the Western idea of a martial arts school and there being like, you know, the sensei type in the front that you learn from. Right. And that was actually never really the model of Chinese martial arts school. We've discussed that before. You know, you, you do your bai si, you have a sifu, and then most likely it's a si hang that's teaching you unless your sifu takes a special interest and then that can change the relationship. But during the time that Bruce Lee was learning, Grandmaster Yip Man also had a, a lot of personal problems and, and issues with... Uh, um, let's just say he had numerous personal issues. We'll leave it at that. And so he wasn't really teaching anybody at that time. So he had handed over most of the teaching to his students. And I believe that that has a lot more to do with the reason that Yip Man didn't teach him personally than because he was European or something. But it was true that Grandmaster Yip Man did not want to teach Europeans. But it's actually a step further. So apparently he had a few teaching abstentions. One, he didn't want to teach non-Chinese. That's kind of a given, given the time period and China's history with uh, foreign countries. Two, apparently he also didn't like to teach women, although there is a photo of him teaching women. So who know, we don't know. So is it true or is it not true or what's the deal, right? The other thing is apparently he had like four teaching abstentions uh, beyond non-Chinese and women. And that was like he didn't like to teach people who were too rich too poor, too smart, or too dumb. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I'd read this in a couple books. And, uh, you know, he didn't like to teach people who were too poor because, well, Wing Chun was an art that was traditionally very expensive to learn. And you need to have some money to learn it. It's not something that is given out for free. Two, people who were too rich often thought that they could just buy it by buying the Sifu and they would somehow get the skill and maybe they wouldn't work hard. So if you were too poor or too rich... No chance. Second, too dumb or too stupid, right? Obviously, if somebody's too dumb, they're not able to grasp the theories and concepts of Wing Chun. And if you can only learn the techniques and not the concepts and theories, you won't really understand Wing Chun. And uh, two people who are too smart. I, I never really quite understood why you don't teach people who are too smart. Um, but apparently that was one of the abstentions. But what a lot of people don't know is Yip Man didn't even like to teach people who are not from the proper region of China. He so Chan Chi Man told me he didn't even teach northern Chinese because he felt that northern Chinese were taller and had certain physical advantages and they shouldn't be learning the southern Chinese secrets. So when people say, oh, Yip Man would have would not have been happy if, you know, a white guy or a black guy or whatever is teaching Wing Chun. And it's like, I don't he wouldn't even be happy if the dude was from Beijing. So, I mean, like, right, 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 so, right. so it, it, it goes a little bit deeper because there's a lot of these you know, like for non-Chinese, they just kind of look at China as one thing, but they don't realize how many divisions and uh, exist oh, yeah, within no, China and, and, and how these things are like uh, really real and palpable. I did ask Chan Chi Man once because uh, Chan Chi Man, who learned in, in the restaurant union period, very early time, I said, um, 
okay, obviously martial arts didn't become super popular for Westerners until a little bit later, like Bruce Lee, let's say 60s, 70s. But I, but I asked Chan Chi Man, I said, did any Westerners ever come to try to learn from Yip Man in the 50s? Because Hong Kong was a British colony. You have lots of right, Br- yeah, British yeah. people. I mean, there were a lot of foreigners in Hong Kong. So I was very curious. And he says, he actually said, yes. He said, uh, when they were at the restaurant union, he says one time some, he said some British guys came up because they had interest in martial arts. And they heard that Yip Man teaches some style of Kung Fu and they wanted to learn it. And they literally came up with a translator and asked Yip Man if they can learn from him. And Yip Man apparently was very gentlemanly and very nice, but like very politely refused them. And so um, I'm very curious about those kind of stories because we always think of of Chinese Kung Fu in like post pre and post Bruce Lee terms. But we don't realize like how many other phases were going on in between that had nothing to do with Bruce Lee and how many Westerners even in Hong Kong even knew the name Wing Chun before the late 60s. I would love to know that. Like, I'd be very curious to find out, like, how well known was Wing Chun to the Brits or even Hong Kong or Kung Fu in general. So um, perhaps one day I will find out. Yeah, well, I mean, you go to Hong Kong a lot. That's uh, it definitely sounds like a project for you to uh, yeah, the problem investigate is, while you're there. The problem is finding people who were there at that time. So you have to realize it's like a scale. You have to find people who were there at that time. That's one category who actually know the answer. And then three who give a shit enough to tell you about it. Right. So you need this, like you need this trifecta of these things coming together to get a solid answer. The most, the, the least satisfying answers you get sometimes are from students of Yip Man because like for me, I can tell you the history of Long Tang and Yip Man and all these like break it down by year. But just because somebody learned from Yip Man doesn't mean he can tell you where the school was in 1968. It's so long right, ago right, they right. don't know. So sometimes you, 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 you wish they were a little bit more geeks about this stuff than they are because they, they'll, they sometimes don't even know. And you're just like, oh, like, how come you don't know this? This is so unsatisfying, but you know. You know, that reminds me of when I first started uh, talking with Steve Golden. And you got to realize, folks, this is in the old days before everybody carried cell phone cameras, okay? I remember saying to him, like, oh, could you send me copies of all the pictures of you and Bruce Lee? And he had said to me, sure, he said, send me all the pictures of you and your instructor. And I was like, I don't think I ever took a picture of my instructor at the time. Right. He goes, right, because that's not something you really did on an everyday basis, Sean. Yes, yes. He's like, people are like saying like, oh, how come you didn't take a bunch of pictures with Bruce Lee? And he goes, because that's not something you just did. It right. was, you know, it, it would happen once in a blue moon. So I have a couple. He's like, but people like, you know, equate like today. I mean, if one of your students was asked, oh, show me pictures of you and, you know, Sifu Alex. Oh, well, here's 750 that are posted on social media. Right, right. But, you know, back then, that just wasn't a thing. When I say back then, I'm talking just 20 years ago, yeah. 25 years ago. You know what I mean? It wasn't just something that you did, you know? Right. It's- well, I mean, the, the, the phones, it's like, it's amazing. Like, my parents took a lot of photos of me growing up, but I don't think, I don't think that, I think it pales in comparison to, like, how many photos I have of my kids just because it's so easy. Oh, right. I mean, 
you used to have to have a camera and film and then take it to the place to get it developed and then bring it back. It was like such a process. And now right. uh, I remember it was a comedian. I don't know if it was Norm MacDonald or somebody. I think it, it might have been one of his last, the last bits on the David Letterman show. And he was talking about people like, you know, two, three generations from now going like, hey, do you want to see 50,000 photos of my great granddad? <laughs> Like, right, right, right. Where it was like he was saying, like for him, his father had like two photos of his grandfather, and that was it, right? Right, and, right, right. And now it's sure. like I have my kids, like, and, and Facebook reminds me every year what I posted the year before and five right, years right. earlier, and then you could see it, and and it's interesting. I mean, it's the one nice thing I have to say that's come out of social media is having this record so you can like go back and see your kids grow and see my school change right, yeah, and, and sure. see people develop it to a much greater degree than existed before. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. But these kids today with their rock and roll music, they're spoiled. <laughs> I saw, um, the, the comedian, I know we're not, you know, I'll talk about this comedian anymore. Right. But Louis CK. Yeah. I remember seeing him on some, uh, uh, I don't know if it was Jay Leno at the time or some other late night, uh, talk show. And he was talking about his kid sending him a text or him sending his kid a text. And like he sent a text and like three seconds went by and the kid was like, did you send it? Because I didn't get it yet. And he's like, give it a minute. And she was like, but I didn't get the text yet. And he's like, I sent it from your my phone. It has to hit like this pole, then hit a satellite, then find another pole, then find your phone amongst the 700 phones within a half a mile here, right, right. you know? It's like, people, like, uh, it's getting, you know, spoiled, I guess, is the... Uh... Yeah, I mean, think about it, like, you know, I mean, back in the days when you wanted to order something, you had to, like, maybe cut the mail order thing out of the magazine, send a oh, check. Sure. Um, you know, I remember even when I went to high school, you know, like, when I left uh, New Jersey and moved to Seattle, like... We wrote letters to each other. Like, I wrote letters to my old friends. Like, I, I still right, right, live right. in that time period. And, and just thinking, like, and then you waited. And you were, like, waiting day after day for that thing to come in. And the anticipation was there and, and everything. And it seems like we have such an instant gratification culture right now. Where, I mean, it even, I mean, even though I grew up then, I mean, even now, like, if someone sends me a text and it doesn't come in right away, like, I think, like, something's wrong. Because right. we, we've now been like, our brains have been changed that everything is instant gratification and everything has to be answered now. And so, uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, even for us old dogs, we, we've been retrained already. And just one quick thing about me and geekdom. One of the first things I ever geeked out about is I used to write letters to Elvis Presley when I was a kid. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> I used to love, I used to, Elvis Presley Boulevard. I used to write <laughs> <laughs> I used to write letters to Elvis Presley. That's awesome. Oh, man. Tonight's main topic is being brought to you by Sifu John Crucione at Laughing Dragon Wing Chun. We know John for a long time, and he's known as an old-school guy teaching real-world effective Wing Chun. John's been involved in the martial arts for 50 years, most of that in Wing Chun, and he's one of the most respected teachers on the East Coast. He has a very successful school on Long Island, and two branch schools, one in Syracuse, New York, as well as one in Atlantic City, New Jersey. If you're in those areas and want to train with one of the best, you need to go to Laughing Dragon Wing Chun. And of course, you can find them on Facebook. And if you're on Long Island, you got to go to 110 Stewart Avenue in Westbury, and you tell them the dudes of Kung Fu sent you. All right, now let's get back to the show. 
So, Alex, our main topic tonight was... Uh, did, did we you, want to, we, I was going to say, did you forget it already? Because we... T- <laughs> I didn't forget it. I'm just thinking, we both know well, I am the least eloquent it, of the it, two it, of well, us. Well, to, to be fair, it's not like a topic with a title. It's kind of like an idea. An idea, a situation. Yeah. So, so, so the main topic tonight is training with great ones versus training with... Um, not so great. Not so great ones. (laughs) And what I mean by that is I consider myself a not so great one. So how this topic came to be is, uh, recently I was chatting with a buddy of mine at my kitchen table here, uh, Steve Brown from Canada. Yay. Yay, Canada. Yay, Steve Brown. And, um, good dude, by the way. Anyway, so we we were chatting at the table and we were talking about seminars and things to that effect. And I had kind of said that I... At a certain point in my life, in my martial arts career, I decided, I, I kind of had this realization that I didn't need to learn from great ones anymore. I have great ones in my life. Steve Golden is a great one. In my mind, Steve Golden is magical. He can make things happen. He could do things that I always say normal people can't do. And, and of course, there was a time when he had to figure things out. But in my mind, as I see him now... Like, he does shit, and people look at him and say, how the fuck did he just do that? Like, how did he make that work? You know, and it's because he has an understanding of time. And things. I'm not saying there's anything magical about what he does. But I do think most of us, as martial arts practitioners, don't attain that level of proficiency in the martial arts. Most of us are what I would call working men, martial, working men martial artists or working women martial artists. And what I mean by that, that we're instructors who instructors or practitioners who who get punched in the face who have to you know are still working things out can't pull off a certain trap can't make a certain footwork work for them a certain strategy a tactic things to that effect and really have to like put stuff in the in the uh in a testing environment to really find things and make them work and i feel that me, as a blue-collar martial artist, as a working man martial artist, I've gotten more out of that lately than I would from training with, insert name here, of the most, you know, established, brilliant one. You know, if we were going we to take it out of the martial arts and take away anybody's hurt egos, with my obsession with guitar, if someone said to me, oh, Sean, I can arrange for you to you know, take a guitar lesson from Eric Clapton. Well, I would do it because it would be awesome to learn from Eric Clapton and play with Eric Clapton. And I'm sure he'll be able to sit there and say, you know, you should try this or that. Quite frankly, I'm going to get more out of the guy who's running a guitar school here on the island or someone who's given lessons and, and, and is not one of the great ones, but he's working his way towards there because he's closer to the level I was than an Eric Clapton is. Right. You know, he's just closer, so he'll have more of an understanding of where I am in my development than, say, an Eric Clapton or a Jimi Hendrix or whoever was, insert the great one. So if we're going to look at martial arts and we're going to just, I mean, pick a name, I don't care if you want to pick a name, of someone who's just brilliant and can just do things, and you say, oh, man, how do they make that work? They can just do brilliant things. They're further away from you in your development level than the working man, the blue-collar martial artist and the blue-collar martial arts instructor. And I just kind of feel like 
I don't I think people have fallen into this bad habit of searching for and only looking for the famous ones. Mm. Oh, you know, that it almost becomes like the more famous the instructor is, the more legit they are right. in their minds. And you know, although you're probably a better instructor now than you were five years ago, ten years ago, I bet five, ten years ago you worked as hard as you work now right. to get the best you can you know what I mean? So I think that we have to sit there and say, like, you know, I wanna learn I wanna learn from people that may not be famous but are still making it work and uh -huh. getting it done. Because they, they, they find ways of doing things. Right. Yeah, I, I, it's also, by the way, speaking of Eric Clapton, some uh, uh, interviewer once asked Eric Clapton, um, what's it like being the greatest guitar player in the world? Do you know what his answer was? They say he asked Prince. You got to ask Prince, right? right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was great. Um, yeah. yeah, so, uh, um, yeah, well, I think you're right. I mean, obviously, it also depends a little bit. I think this is one of those topics where it's difficult to paint everything with uh, kind of a single paintbrush because um, there are shining examples of people who are high-level, brilliant name, like let's say a name brand person in a martial art who are also kick-ass instructors and right. are great with, with regular, non-brilliant people, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, just as we know, there are plenty of examples of people who are absolutely brilliant in martial arts and couldn't teach a beginner if you held a gun to their head, right? Um, and the same thing goes for no-name people. There are no-name people who are great, and there are no-name people who are terrible. So right. um, I, I mentioned this, I think, a long time ago, like maybe in one of our early seasons. Um, uh, one of my good friends, uh, we've had him on the podcast before, Doc Chang, told me, and I hope I'm not misquoting him here, that uh, Dan Inosanto said that when you want to learn a style, um, it's sometimes best to go to the number three guy. And um, right. by, by, by number three guy, we, we don't necessarily mean like, I, I, I kind of look at it more like a number three type because the number one guy, that let's say the guy who's either the head of a system, a founder of a system, or like just even the main guy of the school, that person has established their name, their reputation. And so it might be, hit or miss if that guy still cares about teaching people because they're established and they're the name and they're the money. The number two guy is often the guy who might become the successor and he is usually kind of a sycophant, kind of an ass kisser to the number one guy. So he's usually also a terrible guy to learn from because that guy <laughs> is just worrying about his position in the school, the style, whatever. The number three guy who's so advanced and he's all the way up there, like maybe the same level as the number two guy, but is not vying to be a successor or the next leader or whatever. That's the person who's there really for the passion of the art. And that's probably the person who's best suited to teach you because they're not the founder who might be established and not give a crap. And they're not the successor who's just worried about being the successor they are there genuinely for the love of the art. So this kind of like number three type. And of course the person might be the number four, number five, number six in there, but it's like, it's this kind of type, the best person who doesn't have a political stake or doesn't employ politics as something as being important might be the person to learn from because they're really doing it for the genuine love of the art. And I think that that's kind of a cool thing, but of course it's also access. I mean, imagine that, 
you live in the same town. Let's say you're a Brazilian jiu-jitsu person and you live in the same town as, I don't name like any kind of top of the food chain Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy and you can learn from them. You would absolutely want to learn from them if you could afford it and you could make it. But right. if your Brazilian jiu-jitsu, if your town only has a, you know, a no-name person, but the guy's qualified or whatever, well, you would go there and you would probably make some justification that it's better to learn from a small-town jiu-jitsu guy than a big-town Wing Chun jiu-jitsu guy or, or a big-town jiu-jitsu guy or big-town right. Wing Chun guy, right? And so right. I think people deal with the hand that is dealt to them and then they kind of justify it after the fact. I'm sure there are plenty of people who train at Henzo's in New York, which is a big school, very crowded. Who are like, yeah, but we learn from we learn at the Henzo Gracie Academy, and then there are probably people who are learning at Gracie Henzo Gracie affiliates who are like, yeah, we get the same program, but we have a smaller school, and our guy learned from Henzo, but we're a lot. It's like, we right, can, right, you right. see what I mean? So it's like, but no matter right, what, yeah, no matter no matter which school you were in, you would say it like in Wing Chun. The early period students, well, they were there when Yip Man was teaching all the classes himself and they got all the special stuff and were trained as fighters and, you know, b before Yip Man got too old. The middle period guys are like, well, you know, in the early period, Yip Man had a lot of problems. He didn't really start teaching until the middle period. That's why the middle period guys are more technical. And then the final period guys are like, yeah, but we get the version where he made all his final edits in the form. And so it's like it doesn't matter what period you come from. You would like find a way to justify it as being the best possible situation because you right. have the older, more refined version of Yip Man's art, the middle period where he's teaching more people or the early period where he was really there for his peeps. And so um, it's an interesting argument. And I think there's something there. I mean, learning from somebody who is skilled and motivated or maybe not the most skilled, but super motivated could be better than learning from the name brand guy who doesn't give a shit about you or doesn't like you were talking about relate to you because they right. haven't been a beginner for 30 years right right yeah I, I wasn't saying anything malicious about them you're right i i think like in the heart of the instructor they would do what they you know were doing the right thing the famous person i'm just saying it's just been so long since they've been that guy right and and for the most part people on that level the superhuman martial artists don't work with the newbies for a reason, right? They're 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 too busy tweaking the abilities of the higher level guys, right? And, and that's probably how it more should be, because you know, if you, I'm sure, again, I never trained in Henzo school. I've never trained in any of the famous Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu schools in Brazil. But I'm sure if you go into Hilo Gracie's, whoever runs Hilo's school now, uh. Hoist Gracie's school, I'm sure Hoist is not teaching the white belts how to shrimp. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? I'm sure it's, it can't be. Right. You know what I mean? He's teaching the black belts who are working with the brown belts and the purple belts who are teaching the blue belts who are teaching the white belt how to shrimp. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that if I come along and now I don't know how to shrimp and I say, someone says, hey, I can get you a one-hour lesson with Hoist Gracie, it's almost like a waste of time for both of us. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like a waste of time for both of us. I'm talking about like, you know, when you when you're have the chance to train in the martial arts. If you're if you're an introduction to the martial arts, or you're at a, a, a an intermediate beginner level, to train with the, the big guys, it's almost like a waste of time for the two of you. Right. You know, it's really you need someone who's going to specialize in 
working with people that see those problems every day that you're having. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, because the big name guy, and we're going to just keep it Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in this part here because I don't want to offend any Kung Fu people. Like, the big name Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu guys, Hoist Gracie is so far past looking to see if a guy's hips are stacked right or not. Right. Because everybody he works with knows how to shrimp and knows that, you know, not to put pressure on this ankle instead it should be this ankle or thinks, you know, the, what, what the, what the, what the checkbox are off, you know, like the technique has probably like 10 checkboxes for it to make it work. Right. He, you know, he's used to working with people that automatically check those boxes off every time. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, and, and he's got to, you know, get, get, get the specialty part, the tweaks to get it to work. And, um, the idea that, but there's, there's somebody in the school who teaches shrimping to new people all the time who runs into all of the problems all of the time right? and, and gets it done. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, I think like, like anything else, it has to do with the culture of the school. So actually, to your point, um, many years ago, I did a seminar with Hoist Gracie and there were tons of black belts there, purple belts, and I was like a nothing belt, right? Right, and, right, right. And I'll tell you what, he taught a seminar, it was for all levels, and he focused on like teaching self-defense stuff, like so it was like kind of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for the street. And right. he came over and spent a bunch of time with me and showed me a bunch of basic stuff and was like super helpful. And so, you know, I mean, I think it depends like because it depends on how this culture of the school is set up, how professional the school is, and also how structured the teaching program is. So, um, you know, some schools, they, they're very big on instructor training. So anyone who's teaching you is totally qualified. And the instructors right. who are at the top, they also know that beginner teacher program and progression. So that means that sometimes they're still in it because they're teaching other people how to teach it. But if the school is a little bit more... Um, if, if the head instructor is a little more hands-off, like they're, it's a difference between like you have a figurehead of a school and you have a figurehead who's there all the time. Right. Th then that also tends to change the uh, dynamic a little bit because there, sure. there are plenty of figureheads who are like, yeah, yeah, it's their school, but you know they breeze in a couple times a month and maybe say something and walk out. And it's another thing like you know, um, you go there and that person, that celebrity is there every day teaching. So that also has um, a bit of a difference to it. And also in, in my own personal career, um, you know, I learned um, for nine years, I learned uh, privately and through seminars directly from my Sigong from Sifu Leung Ting. And that was great. He taught me the wooden dummy. He taught me the long pole. He taught me the Buji Chi Sao. And he, and he also retaught me on all the basic stuff. And that was learning it directly from the grandmaster of the system. And I'm super, super grateful for that. But the other guys that I learned from within his organization, the other high-level guys, let's say number three types to use what we were talking about before. Right. Um, you know, Leung Ting's brother, Leung Kun, or Sifu Cheng Chun Fun, one of his uh, old uh, training partners, or uh, Sifu Leon Tim, one of his old students. These guys gave me a kind of insight that I would have never gotten from Sifu Leung Ting. And, you know, not that he wouldn't have given it, but they have a different perspective because they knew him and followed him for many years. So they could like, I could show them something he taught me and they could say, ah, he showed you how to do it like this, probably because he wants you to apply it in this way, this way, this way, this way. And so right. I would get this like context from them 
that I wouldn't have got from Sifu Leung Ting directly. So I'm like extremely grateful to have had these other instructors, also Sifu Carson Lau, who helped to kind of put these things together for me a little bit that I wouldn't have understand had I only learned it from Leung Ting. Like, so sometimes sure. um, I call it contrast training. Uh, we can do it both in individual techniques and we can also do it with different instructors. I don't know if you've had this experience, but in my school, it happens all the time. So my student, Craig, he's the head instructor for basically all the students who come to my school. He's the Sifu of the students, right? Right. He tells them, you know, from day one, how to do the footwork, send your hands forward, the principle, the concept, you know, punch step, all this kind of stuff. Right. Tells them like the same way I taught him until they're blue in the face or until he's blue in the face. You know, keep your elbows in, keep your head back, stand this way, all the standard Wing Chun stuff. Then his students will come and take a class with me. And they expect maybe because I'm their Seagong, I'm going to teach them some kind of like crazy hocus pocus that their Sifu is just holding back from them. And when they come to my class, I teach like basics, fundamentals, that kind of stuff. And I literally say to them the same exact stuff that their Sifu tells them. And let's say, for example, like in WT, we turn one foot at a time, right? When we shift. Right. So let's say, I, you know, I go like, hey, you're not turning right. You need to turn one foot at a time and then come back and the other foot and so on. And then they go back to their Sifu. They're like, hey, Seagong told us we need to turn one foot at a time. And then the and he's looking at them. He's like, dude, <laughs> I tell you this every day, you know, but it's like that's so funny. Sometimes when you hear it from someone else, if there's a slightly more if there's a perception or maybe more authority or more experience, it holds more weight. And I always found that the best instructors in any martial art are people who learned from a great teacher but also either had another great teacher or another influence that gave them some further context that they wouldn't have got with that one teacher think of like yip man didn't learn much from his sifu because his sifu died when he was early, uh, very young so he right, learned from right. his seeing mm Chung so and then maybe from learning bik so the contrast of what those guys showed him strengthened what he learned from his first teacher same thing with Leung Ting and his first Sifu and then later learning from, from Grandmaster Yip Man and then like same thing with many instructors who had a primary instructor and then later learned from somebody else who gave them that kind of context. So I think the, the idea that you can, should, and only learn from one person who is your Sifu is, it's not only dated, but I also think it never even happened in history. I don't think it's actually that co as common as people think it is that people really only that the greats really only learned from one person. They usually had some other people in the background that maybe were not as famous who were helping them get to that level that they got at. Right, right, right. So I mean, I'm, yeah, makes sense, yeah. yeah, think about think about Bruce Lee, right? How much did he learn from Grandmaster Yip Man? Right, how right, much right. did he learn from Wong Sun Leung? How much did he learn from William Cheung? How much did he learn from teaching his own students? How much did he learn about kicking by looking at what the Taekwondo and American guy, uh, you know, karate guys were doing, right? So how much was he influenced by other people who were not Yip Man, right? And, right. and I'm sure that everything he saw there added to his overall knowledge and, 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 and gave depth to what he learned from Yip Man, but it wasn't exclusively from that one person. I think everybody kind of operates this way. Sure. Yep. Yeah, no, I know from um, with, with my Sifu, that's with Tom Kagan in, in uh, Wing Chun. 
Someone had once um, tried to break my balls online, saying, "Oh, uh, your Sifu didn't you didn't learn the knives directly from Moyat, um, or, or some other stupid fucking thing." And I remember like saying something to my teacher, and he laughed, and he said, "Well, he said that's how we were taught." He goes, "You know, we learned everything from Asi." Because <laughs> he goes, "Maybe Moyat would like correct you on something if he was in the mood while he was walking by, or." Right. Or, you know, or like, you know, um, if you were, you know, in his backyard on like on Father's Day working on something or whatever. But uh, he would say, oh, let me see this and correct something small. He's, but for the most part, you learned everything from from uh, from your seeings. Right. You know, that's what we learned. It was just, you know, it's uh, you know, if I could told the story, I won't say the name of the person. Um, he said one time uh, Moyat was uh, in his office painting or doing calligraphy or something to that effect. And he said from the office, he bellowed out, who's working on the jong? And one of his guys yelled out, it's me, Sifu. And he said, well, you suck. <laughs> and he's like, someone go over there and show him, you know, because he could tell from the sound of the jong right. that he, he didn't like the way, like, the timing of the way things were here, you know, he was hearing things hit. And it was just funny, like, you know, he goes and, you know, one of this person's upperclassmen came over and said, oh, you should do it this way, you know. And uh, that's, uh, I just found it to be amusing. And That's funny. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. All right, dude, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I'm glad we actually were able to get together this week and uh, I'll, I'll record a quick AMA uh, ne- next week I'm gonna take a bit of a break because this uh, this week was really tough for me. But uh, I'll, it will give me some time to maybe do that AMA for our uh, uh, for those of you who asked me all those questions, and then and then we'll go ahead and get that one out. So I look forward to that. And uh, yeah, this was a lot of fun. We'll do it. Uh, we'll do it again soon. Talk to you later, bro. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to our latest episode. Please help us get the word out there by sharing this and other episodes on your favorite social media platforms. If you're enjoying the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast, there are many ways in which you can support it. Go to dudesofkungfu.com support to find out how you can help your favorite Kung Fu podcast. We are currently using Patreon to automate great benefits to those who support the podcast. As a supporter of the Dudes, you'll get early access to episodes, as well as a number of other benefits based on your donation level. This includes in-depth topic lectures and even monthly live video conferences with the Dudes. Again, go to dudesofkungfu.com support to find out more about that. As always, you can help support us in small ways as well. Give us a like at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page and share links to episodes. If Twitter is your preferred social media outlet, you can follow the Dudes of Kung Fu there as well. Both Big Sean Madigan and yours truly are on Twitter too. Dudes of Kung Fu is now also on Instagram, so tag it along with the hashtag Dudes of Kung Fu whenever you post something related to the podcast. A great way to support the dudes is to rate and review it on either the iTunes or Android app stores. The written reviews are immensely more helpful than just giving us a five-star rating. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, please write us at the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page. Please understand that neither Sean nor I can guarantee a response, but we will consider any serious suggestions. And finally, I ask that you help spread an open dialogue with other practitioners of martial arts. Chinese Kung Fu in particular has long since suffered from caustic political discourse, which can only change with you. Remember, the person you wholeheartedly disagree with doesn't love martial arts any less than you do. Take care, and thank you for supporting the Dudes of Kung Fu!